0: and duty. Those are vital instruments in our lives. Discipline uh, uh, and duty help us to do what we weakly desire to do. But in time, as we see his magnificence, majesty, see his multiple perfections, and are running after him, what we started with in discipline somehow is transformed into delight. We desire to run after this thing, and so discipline is replaced by desire. We talked about how, as a new creature, when you're born again, all things become old and new, and old things pass away, and all things become new, and in doing that, one of the characteristics of a new creature is a new flame, a new desire, a new sabor, we call it in Spanish. Where you 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 taste things that are different in the world before things that attracted your taste were there, now they don't have the attraction that they had because you've been given a new taste button, if you will. Well, our, theme, our our thesis was this. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And the reason I said that was because satisfaction communicates value satisfaction tells something or someone a thing that gives you satisfaction, then it's valuable to you. We often serve God without that degree of joy, without that satisfaction, and as a result we think that our obedience is accepted, but we saw that passage in Deuteronomy where God reprimanded Israel because they served God but not with a joyful heart. So the way you do that is highly important as well. Now, today I want to talk about something that um, I think is the fulcrum. What is the dynamic that promotes the glory of God and releases unbounded joy in the believer? I would suggest, and I'm going to build this argument today and next Saturday, that that Dynamic is worship. We're going to talk about worship. That it is there in worship where His glory and our satisfaction meet together in a meaningful, demonstrative way where my joy is expressed to Him and His glory is exalted. In the church, that dynamic that gives us that platform to do that is this thing we call worship, whether that's collectively or whether that's privately. So why don't we pray before we get started, and we'll start Uh, uh new... Uh, is this really good? I don't think that gets any time. So we'll start new material. Let's pray. Father, it seems like our eyes are too small, our perception too limited, Lord, to see the infinite greatness of Yourself. Yet, You, Lord, through Your Word and mostly through Your Son, demonstrated to us, Lord, something so great beyond our imagination. And it wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we earned it, Lord. It was by Your grace. And we thank You, Lord, for those words of the disciples who John said, you know, we saw Him. We saw the glory of God in Him. Help us to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus, Lord. In these days, Lord, in, in this postmodern church, there's a lot of discussion about worship and the methods and all of that sort of thing. But I pray, Father, that You would take us beyond the structure of beyond the technique, and release within us a heart that really wants to just adore you. Father, we come to your table this morning. Some of us need baby chairs. Some of us can eat this with chopsticks. Most of us need forks and knives to eat what you've placed before us. Some of us, Lord, are so desperate, really it with our fingers if we have to help us get this in our hearts, Lord. And to you, we'll give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to talk about satisfaction in worship. We'll divide this up this morning and continue in I'm not here this morning to address methods of worship. Those are secondary. Each group has its own preference. But what I see in the element of worship is a place where God's glory is able to juncture with my satisfaction. And we were drawn to a place where, in our worship of the King, we can uh, find our deepest satisfaction in Him through this expression. Now, I want to share some things with you this morning that may cause you to tilt, (coughs) tilt, tilt, you know. And uh, so just stay with me, realizing that all of this is built on what we've said previously. The most fundamental element of worship is this. It is based on the fact that God is completely satisfied with himself. In other words, he is happy with himself. One would think that that is a basic element in worship, but I'm going to share and explain to you why it is. All that God does through his acts of love Providing salvation, redemption, healing, purpose, eternal life. All that He does for us is not His ultimate goal. We, in this modern day, present it as it is His ultimate goal. And so we walk away thinking that God created Himself for us. But that's not true. We were created for Him. And so all that He has provided for us is not His intrinsic, in, uh, ultimate goal. It is His penultimate goal, next to His ultimate goal. These things He performs for the sake of something greater. He saves us, He heals us, He redeems us, He gives us eternal life for something greater, namely, the enjoyment that He has in glorifying Himself. They say, well, that sounds pretty egotistical. Well, it is if you're not God. Now, you and I, we can't do that. I don't find too much in John that brings deep, deep satisfaction to me. But he is the eternal perfect one. He is what I call the only. And with him, there is nothing else. He is the perfect. Now, I would suggest. That if God were not devoted to the preservation and the display and the enjoyment of his own glory, we would have no hope in finding happiness again. That's why he's completely satisfied in himself. Was it let me let me ask you a question. Do you think God was satisfied with himself before creation? Most absolutely. I mean, did He create us because He was bored and He wanted some toys to play with, you know, and, and so He could entertain Himself? Of course not. He was, and is, and forever will be completely satisfied in Himself. That is the God we serve. We were talking about the capacity of joy. <clears> hmm. <throat> Our capacity. But his capacity far exceeds ours. And the only thing that can satisfy God must be of the same caliber as himself. Think about this it has to be the same character as himself. For him to esteem and be satisfied and to be. Honored and to find this intrinsic joy in Himself, with anything less would be idolatry. The only thing that can fill this requisite is God Himself. So it's not a, it, it is a noble thing. It is, it is a divine thing for able, for God to be able to be uh, uh, joyful in Himself. Psalms 115 3 says this. <clears throat> Our God is in heaven, in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. This verse says that God is, It has infinite power to do all the things He wants for His own pleasure. Does it for His his own pleasure. Now if God therefore possesses all power to perform all things for His good pleasure, then He must be the happiest of all creation. The fountain of infinite joy is the fountain that you and I are invited to, to drink from. Therefore, let me just conclude that God is completely satisfied in Himself. And if God is completely satisfied in Himself, then He lacks nothing and has no needs. Now see, we come to God in worship with the idea that He needs this. But He doesn't. To attribute a need to God... Would indicate that he is incomplete, thus disqualifying him from being God. To have a need is to be incomplete. Would you agree with that? Don't don't talk to me in all different time. Of course, and it would not be consistent. With divinity to have lack or be incomplete, and to suggest that God has a need is to disqualify him from being God. The early fathers, in the first few centuries of the church, suggested that God is the most simple of all beings. Now that doesn't mean he was stupid or an idiot. <clears throat> Back then, that word simple meant indivisible, that God was not a composition of things, of characteristics, but rather a whole. In other words, he's not more merciful than he is wrathful. He's not more gentle than he is firm, more loving than he is holy. He is one complete being with no division and no lack. That is his ultimate perfection. Now seeing God through this unshackled prism, the view that he is completely satisfied in himself, the question then is what is the one thing that makes him happy? And I would suggest to you that the one thing that fits this infinite desire is His own glory. His glory. I want to talk a few minutes this morning about the glory of God. What is it? Kind of hard to define. It's like beauty. How does one describe beauty? Uh, I mean, to to one man, this might be beautiful. To another man, that's just ugly. I mean, I know some people that love Picasso, and I I look at Picasso, and I think he was schizo. So there's different tastes. How do you define beauty? That's what we're faced with when we try to define his glory. But let me use this definition as a working definition for the glory of God. The glory of God is the beauty of of His multiple perfections. The glory is the infinite value of His majesty. In other words, we could say that the glory of God is all His goodness. Now, I'll tell you why I'm using that as a as a, as a definition of what His glory is. We need to, to grasp this. The Bible tells us in Exodus 33, Moses goes up on the mountain and he has a dialogue with Yahweh. Turn with me, if you will, in Exodus 33, 13 through 19. <clears throat> Exodus 33, 13 through 19. So, what we're saying is. God is satisfied in himself. What is the dynamic that pushes together the glory of God and our quest for satisfaction? I'm suggesting it is worship. And what is the key element of worship? It is that God is satisfied in himself. Bringing that more precisely, that what God gives, what gives God is satisfaction, it is his own glory we will see that everything he does is for his glory. Everything. Because that is what gives him satisfaction. Exodus 33, 13-19. We're talking about what is the glory of God. Now therefore, <clears throat> Moses is talking to God. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He prayed, not only for himself but for this nation that he's leading. In other words, what we see here is that the path of the Lord is where his presence is. Where you will find him, you will find his will. That's why a lot of people are living in the shadow. They're living in the clouds because they're not, they're not walking in His will. You walk in His presence and He will present to you His will. At least that's what I get out of 14, verse 14. Verse 15. And He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, <clears throat> let me pause this a minute. I know some preachers That would have never said that. I mean, Moses has been given everything. I mean, he's got multitudes, he's he's had victories, he's had successes, and yet he says, If your presence does not accompany us, don't take us out of here.
1: For how shall it be known
0: that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? The one mark that drew the distinction between Israel and the rest of the nations was the presence of God. And I would suggest that that is the same mark of distinction that holds us distinct as Christians in an ungodly society. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That pleased the Lord. Then he says, verse 18. Moses said, I'm going to take it a step further. Please, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now these two verses, 18 and 19, struck me. Because here is a man who says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, Okay, hide in the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asked To see the glory of God, God ends up showing him all His goodness. So I must conclude then that what Moses asked for was not a supernatural presentation of some sort. I'm not even sure he really knew what he was asking for. And God said, "I'm going to respond by showing you My glory." And for God. That means showing His multiple perfections, His infinite kindness, His power, patience, love, mercy, purity, holiness, majesty, intelligence, wisdom, wrath, creativity, immutability, all, His infinite worth, eternity, all presented to Moses. Make this a brief comment. I want to suggest that this is the glory of God. His multiple perfections. Things that we can't see clearly. But things that draw us. Things that appeal to us. Things that suck us in when we approach Him. This glory is not a cloud. Although at times it was manifested in a cloud, there were times when they would enter into the tabernacle and the cloud was so thick that they could not worship standing on their feet. The cloud by day and the pillar by night are often referred to as His glory. But His glory is not a climactic phenomenon. His glory is His infinite wellspring of perfection. And this is what, if you can grasp this, this is what satisfies Him. Now, that's reinforced. Everywhere you go in the Bible, that's reinforced by admonitions that He gives to His creatures to not offend His glory. And that's because it's valuable to Him. And if you offend it, He will summon all of His might to bear against those who defame and belittle His glory. Now, if you don't believe this, just insult His glory and watch what happens. Not that He's, he's, you know, He's jealous or that He's... uh, Easily offended. But that is the source that gives him his satisfaction, his own glory. For him to be satisfied with anything less would be idolatry. He's satisfied within himself. And this wealth of perfection is the thing that we are invited to, to drink. And First Peter 13 says, Jesus died. Bring us to God so that we could participate in what we were made for. Time and time again, we are shown that all that God does in creation is for his glory. That's interesting. Certainly, we benefit from it, but his motive is not for us. His motive is for his glory. Let me give you some verses. In Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-two through twenty-three, we see here that God will vindicate his holiness or defend his holiness. Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-two
1: through twenty-three. Let me read this
0: to you. <clears throat> Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. In other words, he's saying, look guys, you blew it. And I'm about to do something, but it's it's not primarily for your sake. It's for my holy name. For the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations which you came they have been dispersed because of the rebellion. And going into Babylon, they defamed His name. They dishonored His glory. And God says, I am going to vindicate My holiness, not because of you, but because of My name. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord," declares the Lord God. "When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, you blew it. You, you uh, menospreciado. How do you say that? Uh, belittle, belittle my 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 glory. You you stained my glory. You profaned my holy name. And He said, I am going to vindicate my holiness in the eyes of all the nations and I'm going to use you to do it. The very ones that were guilty against Him, I'm going to use you to do it. And I would suggest that that is is the principle of worship. We're coming here. We come here and we worship the Lord. And what He's doing is He is establishing a Exalting his honor and his glory, and you and I are participants in that, and his name is sanctified in all the earth. All these people watching come into church on Sunday, what do you think? Down in their heart, they're saying, These people see something I don't see. Ezekiel 36, 32 says, same chapter, a few verses down. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, oh, house of Israel. He's saying, this, this act has nothing to give you a reason to boast. This is not about you. It is about me. It is about me. And he's going to use us to exalt his glory. Because he does everything for his own glory. Did you know that the Bible teaches you were predestined for His glory? Ephesians 1, 5-6. Predestination makes people's hair stand up on the back of their neck. But get over it because it's biblical. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 5-6 says this. He predestined us for adoption. Say that with me. He predestined us. He predestined It won't hurt. Say it out loud. It's not going to bite you. He predestined us for adoption. Hallelujah. That was before I was around. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has has blessed us in the blood. We were predestined for His glory. Not so that you could walk around and boats. We were predestined for His glory. Ephesians 1.12 says, You are for the praise of His glory. You exist for the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1.12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. That phrase, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. Of His glory. That is our purpose. And I would want to suggest that anything, any other ultimate goal in life is fruitless for the Christian. It, is, it may be necessary for a season, but that, if that is the ultimate goal, to pursue a good family, a good reputation, a big education, a big bank account, and all these things that we deem as important, if that is our ultimate goal, it will leave us frustrated Because this is our goal. To the praise of His glory. The promise of your inheritance in Christ is for His glory. Ephesians 1.14 Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of His glory. What He has prepared for us in our inheritance in heaven is for His glory. Isaiah 43, 7. I'm going to need to turn to this one because I didn't write it down. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Why did God create a people for Himself? For His glory. Everyone who is called by His name for His glory. Whom I created for my glory. You breathe every day for His glory. why did God make a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor from the same lump of clay for his will Romans 922 through23 what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. His demonstration of power over national politics is for his glory. Why did God incarnate his Son? For his own glory. Romans 15, 8 9 says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy it's in His Son, to be glorified among Jew and Gentile alike. Why did the Son come to His final hour on the cross? Is it because He loved us? Certainly He did. When he came to that final hour on the cross for the glory of His Father. John 12, 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So one has to conclude. Then what this does it makes me conclude that God loves Himself and His glory with infinite love. And His number one goal, if God can have a goal, is to preserve, demonstrate the majesty and infinite value of His glory. This is His supreme passion, to esteem and exalt His Word. Everything He does is for His glory. Let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be unjust for God to value something above the most perfect? I don't mean love. You know, he loves us in our molds and our and our warts and all this stuff and our rebels. He loves us in our imperfections. But placing this affect of God, wouldn't it be unjust for God to esteem something other than what is perfect? That's his supreme source of joy. That would be idolatry. That's why he can do this. We, we, cannot, we cannot. We cannot look to our own glory and, and, and enjoy our own glory because frankly, we don't have it. It is what we have has been bestowed upon. He has got And it is His divine characteristic to enjoy Himself more than anything else. Now that's essential in worship. And next week I'm going to talk to you about why. But let me just summarize real quickly. The supreme affection of God is to preserve, demonstrate, and share the infinite supreme value of his glory to all creation. That's the supreme moment. The supreme passion of God is seen in the exaltation of his glory. Capture that what I just wrote, what I just said, he said again. The supreme passion of God is seen in the exaltation. Choruses that we sing, some of them are very deep, very profound, and then provide a lyric that engages us with God. And some of them are just focused on us. Just, you know, if anybody publishes a song, we think it's supposed to be holy. Worship purpose is to exalt His Lord. Not my glory. So next week we'll talk about worship. Um, let's see, let me see. I got five minutes left. No, Don't worry about that. Uh, don't worry about that? Well this says 1029. Yeah, but that Okay, so we're through. We're through. Okay. Are there questions? Anybody got questions or, or <laughs> comments that they'd like to make? Mm-hmm. Did nobody understand? Yes, ma'am. Always, I've always found just the glory to be so. I don't know. It's got so many bright and aspects to it. It's used to you know, so much to the Bible. We are what? Glory to reflect His perfection. Uh-huh. Well, don't say any more. Say any more. Because she just gave away what we're going to talk about next week. His glory is incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible because it is infinite. And it is perfect. You and I cannot comprehend perfection. We compare perfection, we identify perfection by comparing it something, to something that is inferior. That's how we define perfection. And it's always within a comparison of something created. But God is perfect and compares Himself with Himself, which is perfect. So that's beyond comprehension. See what I'm saying? The finite mind cannot grasp that. So that's an honest assessment for all of us. So what do we do when we worship? What do we do? I mean, the, Do we think He gets off on our music? Does He he get off on our our, our talent? No. The essence of worship, then, is what you mentioned. And I'll give you another clue. It is how we reflect back to Him what gives Him joy. His infinite perfection. How do we do that? That's what we're talking about next. Let me pray. Father, we, we enter in sometimes into water that's over our heads. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us the ability to see what normal eyes don't see. You found us deeply in your Scripture, Lord. Protect our hearts. We don't want to go off on panic Lord, I see something in you that is worth everything I have and everything I am. Help us to be men and women who lose themselves. I ask you this